In a country as divided as the US, one of the more heartening stories of unity is the growth of marriage across religious and racial lines. Around four in ten Americans are in religiously diverse partnerships, and one of them is the leading writer and commentator, Naomi Schaefer Riley. She and her husband have been together almost 20 years, they've got three kids, a great marriage. But in a recent book, she says there are pitfalls with interfaith romance. Naomi was in Australia recently with the Centre for Independent Studies. I asked how she'd made it work. <laughs> yes, a little bit of self-reflection there. I think what I would like to say about intermarriage and what the, the book that I wrote a number of years ago said is that on the one hand, the rise of interfaith marriage in America, I think, is a positive development in some ways in that it demonstrates a very high level of tolerance and assimilation. The idea is that these different religious groups in America, Jews and Muslims and Christians, can all get along well enough to get married to each other is really something that is unseen in human history before that. And I don't want to sort of minimize what that means. But at the same time, I think we also need to look at it on the level of individual relationships and what it means that so many people are marrying outside of their faith. And that number has, you know, skyrocketed since the 1960s. The book did a survey and looked at questions of not only people marrying of different faiths, but people marrying faith, no faith, which is what the kind of marriage that I'm in. I'm Jewish. My husband professes no religion. We're raising our kids Jewish. But what happens is that there are lower levels of marriage marital satisfaction among people who are in interfaith marriages. And I tried to really kind of figure out what was behind that. You know, a lot of people assume that if we can agree on the big things, the principles, that everything's fine. But marriage is, of course, you know, a series of day-to-day -day interactions and conflicts and conversations. And the things that people are most likely to fight about in marriages are how you spend your time, how you spend your money, and how you're raising your kids. And religion affects all of those. Um, so that's why I sort of, uh, I, I'm a little bit more wary about it than maybe people might expect. Yeah. How did you make it work? Because I think Jason is now an agnostic. I think he grew up Baptist and became a Jehovah's Witness at one point, didn't he? How have you made that relationship? work though. By the time I met Jason, he was not somebody who professed any faith at all. I probably would not have married someone who professed another faith because I knew that I wanted to raise my children Jewish. And so I recount this funny story in my book of how I told him on our first date that I was planning to raise my children Jewish. So I do think these are conversations that people need to have very early on in relationships. And what happens is they actually tend to put them off for a very long time. When you're in your 20s and maybe early 30s are kind of your typically your most secular point in your life. You're not necessarily going to church or synagogue relatively regularly. But once you get married and sort of start in all these life cycle events of having children, for instance, or maybe you have a parent die or something, you kind of want to return in some ways to your religious roots. But by that point, you've sort of made this connection with another person and a lot of difficult compromises have to be made. The other aspect of a multi-faith society, and a very good aspect of it, I would have thought, is that you also have a multi-ethnic society. And I think there's something rather beautiful about falling in love across what was once a barrier. That's your story. Your husband, to whom we've referred, Jason Riley, is of African-American background, one of America's most respected columnists. I hope this is still commonplace. It's not rare, and it's a, certainly a growing phenomenon across all races, I think. I think what's actually most interesting now is that the one kind of intermarriage that is not growing and indeed shrinking is interpolitical party marriage. Um, <laughs> and I, I think that that tells you a lot about our society. I think that 
you know, people are wear their politics on their sleeves very clearly now. And so you go out in your first date or your second date, and you'll immediately know someone's views on abortion or gun control or any number of other issues, who they voted for in the last election, what they think of Donald Trump. And you won't go out with them again, honestly, in a lot of cases, I think if they disagree because of the sort of state of our political dialogue right now, whereas things like religion are actually sort of buried much more. And you won't bring those up until your third date or you're six months into your relationship or something like that. But yes, interpolitical party marriage is, is down. The reason I raised the question as to whether, you know, intercultural or interracial marriage was rare is I'm wondering whether this march of identity politics, which many people have identified as quite corrosive, has in fact affected the possibility of those kind of intercultural partnerships. I think that's probably going to happen if we continue down this path. Where you see it most in the sort of family realm is in people's attitude toward adoption. There's actually a lot of backlash right now in America against transracial adoption, which I think is really unfortunate. You know, we had for a long time, again, a kind of level of tolerance known nowhere else in history that you would be willing to and happy to welcome in a child who looked nothing like you really into your home. 90-something percent of Americans, you know, approved of transracial adoption. Now, especially sort of the class of social workers in our country, but the elites think these barriers are so large that you couldn't possibly understand what it is like to be this other person. And I think that could eventually, if we continue down this path, have an impact on cross-racial relationships. If you convince people that somebody of another race is so different from you that you could never possibly understand that person person that will really discourage you from meriting them. Yeah. I've been reading a fair bit of your work, for example, on child welfare, and uh, something that you're very passionate about, and this question of interracial adoption. I think you do say that all things being equal, children being adopted by families of the same race probably works out in the sense that there's fewer questions, it's more simple. It is more simple. It's such a hypothetical because in America, we live in a country where so many more of the children who need a stable, loving, adoptive families are African-American, and we don't have a huge population of African-American parents willing to take them in. And so, in fact, the question we're actually faced with is, would you rather this child be adopted by a white family? Would you rather have them spend their life in foster care? And I think that we should all know the answer to that question. Yeah. Back in 2015, you wrote a fascinating book. It's called Got Religion, How Churches, Mosques and Synagogues Can Bring Young People Back. What were you seeing around you that prompted the idea for that book? In the U.S., we've seen a huge decline in the number of younger people going to church, professing religion, but attending church or other religious institutions on a regular basis. Their connection had really faded. And I think, by the way, I trace a lot of that to the rising age of marriage. When you sort of spend this long period of time as a single person, maybe never even getting married at all, never coming back to that sort of family element in church, you're just going to fall away. I just sort of started, you know, hearing about certain institutions that seem to be having more of a following among young people. And it wasn't necessarily what you expected. A lot of it, you know, I think people expected, oh, that these uh, institutions must be very good on social media, you know, grabbing people from the internet or things like that. And it wasn't that at all. I mean, I think some of the most interesting ones were sort of a return to a very local model of church, you know, sort of thinking it about it more like an actual parish where if you're in this square mile, we would like you. If you're outside of the square mile, you should go to the next one over. 
over. Everybody wants the walkable neighborhood now. Well, the walkable church sort of was part of that too. Look, just finally, in the context, for example, of a coming election campaign in the United States, is it a concern for you that religion has become quite politicized in the United States by both sides? But there does seem to be a particular problem for young people in America not wanting to identify, for example, with many white Protestant churches because they do think it's an outgrowth of a political party. Is this something that you've seen? Absolutely. And I think it's a concern on two fronts. The first way it concerns me is that I'm concerned when people make politics their religion, because that's what happens. When a lot of people leave churches, they still need religion or they feel they need religion in their lives. And so then they turn to politics as sort of this be all end all. Politics is going to provide the ultimate truths and the purpose for my life. That's a very dangerous thing. And it probably has led to some of the polarization that you're seeing now. But yes, the other thing is when, you know, everybody just wants to talk about politics from the pews, I think a lot of young people and people, you know, American people in general are sort of turned off a little bit like by that and feel like oh, I'd just rather stay away. If I wanted that, I could stay at home and watch cable news. Spare us from that ex- <laughs> Spare us from that existence, Naomi. <laughs> 24 hours of cable news, 24-7. I don't think so. Look, it has been terrific to speak with you. Naomi Schaefer-Riley, she's one of America's preeminent political commentators. She's with the American Enterprise Institute. She's written extensively on issues of faith and family. Thank you for being with us on the Religion and Ethics Report. Thank you so much for having me. And there's a link to Naomi's articles and books at our website. That's the show. You can find us at ABC Listen. Thanks to Anita Barrow and Anne-Marie de Betancourt. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.